Good morning, Mission View Church. If you have your Bible apps or your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark the second chapter. We're continuing our journey into discovering the Son of Man as we walk through the book of Mark. It was a perfect October evening. It was 74 degrees. It was sunny. We were standing on the beach of Gulf Shores, Alabama. My wife and I and 35,000 of our closest friends all there to see a man we had a deep affection for by the name of John Bon Jovi and the rest of his crew with David Bryan tickling the, t- tickling the keys, Tico Torres pounding the drums, and Richie Sambora fresh out of rehab, ready to shred the guitar like only Richie could. And 35,000 of us were assembled in a sold-out capacity crowd right there on the beach as you looked over to your left. You saw nothing but the water of the Gulf of Mexico. As you looked over to the right, you saw nothing but the lights of hotels. And as you looked forward, you saw nothing but the stage and just sweet anticipation. And as you looked behind you, you just saw people for as far as the eyes could see. And then the band came out and they hit the opening notes of Blood on Blood, the classic that was written in 1989 when I was six and a half years old, to which I know every word of the song. And I began to squeal like a lot of the women who were there who were 20 at the time that Bon Jovi was really popular and who had dug into their attic and found the same leather that they wore at the time they were 20 and put that on to join us on the beach. And as the band hit the chords, just euphoria and people began to scream and all of a sudden it happened. He emerged. John Bon Jovi came out and the, the rest of the band was playing the opening lines and there he was and his leather pants and his leather vest with no shirt on underneath and all of a sudden it was just like a mad rush for the stage and the 30,000 people behind us all decided that they were somehow going to get in the front row and we just began to be pushed on and we just were as as he came out it was just pushing and there was the subtle elbowing everybody wanting to be closer everybody wanting just the sweet spray of John's sweat apparently I'm not really sure what they want They just needed to see the phenomena. They just needed to see the number one touring band in the world. And they just needed to get a little bit closer. And for the next two and a half hours, as we sang the catalog of hits, it was just a lot of jumping and dancing and subtle pushing as everybody tried to get closer. Everybody tried to just get a little bit closer to the action just to get a little closer to the stage. That's what they wanted. I just wanted to be close. This, this you don't get to see every day. This is a rock and roll show by one of the greatest rock bands of all time. You want to be close for that. This morning as we look at Mark 2, what we're going to see is something far more, far more impressive than a rock and roll show by someone far more impressive than John Bon Jovi and the rest of his counterparts. What we're going to see in Mark chapter 2 is is the story of Jesus. And last week we saw that he'd started his ministry. And he was speaking in ways that nobody had ever heard anybody speak before. And he was saying things that nobody had ever heard and nobody had ever really processed. And he was doing things that nobody had ever seen. And at the end of Mark chapter 1, he was healing people like people had never seen healed. 
He was doing incredible things, and the word got out, and it wasn't like today in this day and age where you tweet something or run to social media and let everybody know. No, this was just, it took time, but the neighbors were talking. It was impressive because they couldn't believe what they had heard. They couldn't believe what they had seen with their very own eyes. This morning, Mark 2 starts this way, and when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Can you see the scene? You're there. You're there to see the Messiah. You're there to hear Jesus speak, and you're not missing it. And you got there early, and your spot is secure. And all of a sudden, somebody who came up behind you, they're pushing because they want to get in. They want to see. They've heard the same thing you've heard. They want to see what this is all about. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. They want to see what is Jesus going to do today. And so they start pushing in, and the people after them start pushing in, and you're just, you're firmly entrenched in your spot, and you're holding it down because you were there, and you've got to see this, and oh, can you see the people who were running late? Oh, they wanted to be there. They wanted to be there. They'd, they'd gotten there, but the, the house was packed. There was no more room. People were standing there, shoulder to shoulder, no more room to be had. And so they cram up, and they get to the door, and they, they, they start trying to cram themselves into the doorway just to hear what's going on. And then that becomes so full, there's not even any more room at the door. Because what is going on is so phenomenal. It's so special. They just heard Jesus. He speaks with authority. Like no one we've ever heard before. He speaks as, as though he's God. They saw a leper. A leper that was an outcast of society, ostracized by society and told nobody get clean, nobody get near him, he's unclean. And Jesus takes him and says, do you want to be clean? And he heals the man. And this is impressive stuff. This is stuff that nobody had ever seen before. And no one wanted to miss it out. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And, they went, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that's a great story. That's great. See, here's the problem. You, like, like myself, you've probably heard this story hundreds of times. But this is our challenge. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of those who came to see Jesus. You're listening to him speak. You're there. You're in the room. And all of a sudden, it, doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. Something doesn't feel right. And, and you begin to hear it. And you're not really sure what all's going on. But you begin to hear it. And you look up. And it starts falling down. 
I tried so hard to let North Canton let me rip their roof apart today. <laughs> no dice. So we had to go with some confetti instead. They thought that'd be a little safer. But see, this is our challenge. This is our challenge today. This is our challenge as we go through the entire book of Mark. Most of us know these stories. Most of us are so familiar that we read it and we're like, oh, that's awesome. Go, Jesus. That's great. Listen to what Jesus did. Look at what he accomplished. But we can miss it. We can miss it. It's like when you've seen that movie. The first time, it's the most incredible film you've ever seen. And, and then it's a really good film. And, and then sooner or later, before you know it, you've seen it 50, 100 times, and you put it in at night just to help you fall asleep because you're so familiar with what it's all about. This is our challenge as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Most of us know this story, and so we need to look at it with a fresh perspective. We need to look at it with fresh eyes. This happens in every aspect, in every area of our lives. The more familiar things become, the more they, they lose their specialty. We just become familiar with them, and, and, and they no longer stand out as something great. Thank you for your prayers. My wife and I, we welcomed our second son on Friday night. Beautiful, healthy baby boy. Thank you. I, I was a champ. I appreciate the applause. Uh, she's at home today, so I can say that. And uh, we'll edit that out of the, out of the recording. Um, but I just sat there and held him in my arms. I've got a little, I've got a little two-year, almost two-year-old. Yeah, we're crazy. We know. And, uh, and I just sat there and, and held, held Dean in my arms as just minutes after he was born. And, and I've got that new parent syndrome, right, where you think everything he does is so great. I'm like, he just opened his eyes. This is incredible. Like, Ethan opens his eyes every day, and I'm like, hey, buddy. I don't think about it. I don't think about it. It's like when you first get married. Every morning you wake up and you look at your wife, you're like, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. And then what happens? Three years go by, four years go by, 50 years go by. You're like, you going to turn your alarm off or what? <laughs> Ladies, quit listening to me for like 15 seconds. Stop. Just stop right now. Guys, tomorrow morning when your wife wakes up, Look at her and say, you are the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Just tell her that, all right? You're the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And then grab her hand, because every woman's going to love to hear that. Grab her hand, look her in the eyes, and say, give me just one minute. I need to text Brian to figure out what to say next. You do that, your day's going to be great. All right? Well, minus the second part. Just look your, look your wife in the eyes tomorrow and just tell her she's the most beautiful woman that you've ever seen because at some point in your life, you felt that way. But you just get familiar. It happens in every area, in every aspect of our lives. So this is our challenge as we go through the book of Mark because what we just read is incredible. There's so many people standing at a house and inside a house that people can't see Jesus. And there is a guy who's paralyzed. He can't walk. And society then is not like society now. 
where we have all the ADA regulations and there's elevators everywhere and ramps. No. The reality for this man is that if he wanted to go anywhere, if he wanted to do anything, he was dependent upon others to carry him. That's it. That's his option. That's the only hope he has. And he's laying there in a the mat. And he has friends. And they hear about what's going on. They hear about Jesus. We're going to get you to see Jesus. I don't care what it takes. And they get to the house. And their arms are tired. They've been carrying him. There's four of them, and they're carrying a man on a mat, and their arms are, they're just, they're, they're starting to shake. They've, they've been holding him, and they're walking, and, and they're hot, and they're sweaty, and their arms shakes, and they grab the mat with the other arm to give the, the first arm a break. But that's not their dominant hand. That's not their dominant arm. And before you know it, they walk, they walk a little bit more. And then that hand starts to shake. And then they start, they start alternating between hands. And then they grab on with both hands. And they get to the house where Jesus is. They know Jesus is there. They've heard about it. And they're tired. And there's no chance. They can't even get around the door. People are hanging on every word that Jesus is saying. They don't stop. They refuse to be denied. Oh, they're tired, but they grab that mat. They walk up a set of stairs. They get on the roof. Most homes in Palestine had flat roofs used for relaxation in the cool of the day and for sleeping on hot nights. And there was usually an external stairway that extended to the roof, as is the case here. The roof itself was made of slabs of burned or dried clay that were placed on supporting beams which stretched from wall to wall. The builder would then spread a uniform coat of fresh wet clay over those slabs of hardened clay to serve as a seal against the rain. There they are, all five of them, four friends, and the paralyzed man. And they lay him down. And their arms are tired. Their backs are burning. They're exhausted. They get down on their knees, and they just start clawing against the clay, just start tearing into it until it breaks. 
Then the hole starts, and they keep digging. And as the hole begins, can't you just see their faces? Can't you see the excitement? Adrenaline takes over. They no longer care that they're tired. They're no longer even thinking about being tired. They're no longer thinking about their pain. They see a hole that has started, and they've got, they've got the plan, and they just start attacking that hole with all that they can. They start ripping it open. That's the friend I want to be. I want to be the friend who will carry my friends with determination when they need it. That's the friend I want to be. I want to be that friend. I want to be the friend that in their moment of need, I'm saying, I'm picking up your mat and I'm carrying you. And I don't care if we get to the house and, and we expected an encounter with Jesus and everybody is there and there's no room for us. I don't want to quit. That's the friend I want to be. I want to be the guy whose arms are killing him, whose back is aching, whose legs just want to give out, and I just absolutely refuse. So I just reach down deep, and I find whatever last ounces of strength I have in these puny bones, and I just carry them up to the ceiling, up to the roof, and I begin just to claw and dig, and refuse to be denied. That's the type of friend I want to be because that's the type of friend I want. Because there's going to come a time for each of us when we're laying on a mat. It might not be physical paralysis. But I promise you this, you live long enough, you're going to be knocked down. And I want to be the friend to carry my friends. Because when I'm down for the count, I want, no, I need, I need friends who are willing to carry me. Don't be denied. Don't quit. Be that friend. Be that friend. They didn't have to carry him. They could have turned around. But they decided to never give up. And, then when, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, not everybody in the crowd was, was favorable to what they'd heard Jesus say, to what they'd seen Jesus accomplish. And, and there are some experts sitting there, and, and in their hearts, they're, they're beginning to say, wait a minute, who, who are you? How dare you? blaspheming who can forgive sins but 
God alone. I mean, Jesus, he sees the paralyzed man, and, and what does he say to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. They, they carry a paralyzed man. They, they rip a hole in a roof, and they lower him down to, to see Jesus. And, and what Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Understand this. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulty you're experiencing, the greatest need you have and will ever have in this life is spiritual. It's a spiritual need. The greatest problem of the paralyzed man was not his paralysis. The greatest problem was not the fact that he could not walk, that was not the fact that he was confined. The greatest problem was this, that he was just like you and me. That he was a sinner. That is your greatest problem, that is my greatest problem, that is the greatest problem of the paralyzed man. The fact that God makes the rules, God sets standards, we violate his standards is what the Bible calls sin. And as a result, we are alienated from God. I don't know what you're facing today, and certainly some of you have greater hardships than others, and some of you right now are in the thick of it, and it's the most difficult time of your life. I want you to know I don't mean to sound cold and callous in this at all. I just want you to know the truth. No matter what you face, whether it's physical ailments, whether it's financial hardship, whether it's a failing marriage, whether it's kids who hate you, that's not your greatest problem. Your greatest problem is your sin. So they rip this hole. They lower the man. And Jesus sees their faith and he says, your sins are forgiven. And the people sitting there begin to question and accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? I love this. Jesus knows that in their hearts, they're questioning. And what does he do? He engages them. He engages the critics. He engages the critics. So often in life, what I've found is, is that everyone to a certain degree, some much more so than others, want to shy away from confrontation. Want to shy away from, from critiques, from critics. And I love the fact that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus engages them. He engages them. I love to listen occasionally throughout the week to a, a radio talk show. 
named the Clark Howard Short, named the Clark Howard Show, to to save more and spend less is his mantra, and and he provides all kinds of wonderful ideas on ways to be more thrifty and just to help you do just that: save more of your money, spend less of it. I love it. One of my favorite aspects of the Clark Howard Show is this, and he does it weekly. He does a, a forum on the show, and and people can write into his website, and he calls the format on his own show, the, his own segment on his own show, the Clark Stinks segment. And what he does is he reads the responses from people who disagree with him, who listen in and let him know he's given some bad advice in this situation or that situation. And he doesn't shy away from them. He listens and he responds. And sometimes as a result of what the critics say, he changes. And sometimes as a result of what the critics say, he offers more information and respectfully disagreeing with their assessment, but further letting them know why he gave the initial advice that he gave. I love it. Engage your critics. Engage them. We put so much pressure upon ourselves to do the Holy Spirit's work for him. When we see somebody who's antagonistic towards Christianity, when we see somebody who who doesn't agree with the way that we live our lives, we put so much pressure upon ourselves to be the world's greatest evangelist or the world's greatest apologist and, and explain to them why everything that the scriptures are built upon are true and, and right. And, and we put so much pressure upon ourselves to do this that oftentimes what we do is nothing at all because we're scared that we're going to fail or, or we, just, we just shy behind it. And, and we don't engage those who, who disagree with us. My hope in my, my prayer is that we would be like Jesus and we would engage those who are critical to our faith. We would engage those who are critical to the message of hope that we have in Christ. And here's our responsibility. And I hope this helps you understand what God wants us to accomplish. First Peter 3, 15 and 16 says this. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. You want to engage your critics? You want to impact those who who disagree with Christianity, who don't believe in Jesus? Here's what you've been called to do. Live a holy life. Conduct yourself in a manner that is respectable. Be gentle towards people. And answer what God's done for you. That's it. You don't have to be the world's greatest apologist. And we need people who are great at apologetics. We need people who are great at at ushering defenses of the faith. I'm just going to tell you right now, that's not me. Not that guy. I don't feel bad about it. When people want to come up to me and be like, oh, you're, when they find out I'm a pastor and they're going to be like, oh, so what do you think about the guy in Alabama, pastor in Alabama this week who knew he had AIDS and went around and slept with members of his church but didn't tell them that he had AIDS. What do you, what do you think about that? Or when people come up to me with the latest scandal or, or the latest issue in Christianity and, and expect me to offer up some defense, I don't. Here's my response. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. 
It's all the pressure I put on myself. And then let the Holy Spirit go to work from there. Because saving somebody's not my job, it's God's. My job is just to be faithful and honest with what God's done for me. Engage your critics. Live a holy life. Tell them what God's done for you. Share your faith, and and here's how easy it is. I believe Jesus is God's son. He died because of some mistakes, because of some things I've done in my life. Rose again. And here's the difference he's made in me. You don't have to win an argument. You don't have to win a debate. God hasn't called us all to do that. Engage your critics. Live a holy life and answer what God's done for you. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. God utilizes the miraculous and he is glorified and the greatest miracle that took place is the forgiveness of sins. This is Christ's purpose. This is why he came. And it's faith that saves us. And our faith is in the work of Christ, the fact that he is God. He died on a cross for our sins, rose again three days later. Why does Jesus have the ability and authority to forgive sins? Because he's God. But I love that Jesus doesn't just forgive his sins and be like, okay, guys, why don't you rappel on down here and carry this guy out? But he looks at him and he says, pick up your mat and walk. Don't miss it because you've heard it. Don't miss the tears that are welling up in people's eyes who just love an inspirational story. Don't miss the people, just the shock on their face, who had seen this guy lying around town. Don't miss the feeling of the friends who just physically exhausted and at the end of themselves see this is real. This is why we came, and it's real. Oh, don't miss it in your hearts. God does the miraculous, and he's glorified. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Oh, Jesus has a crowd following him, and he sees a tax collector who's the main of that society, much as the IRS is of of ours. And he looks over, and this entire crowd's following him, and he sees Levi just sitting there at the tax booth. He says, you, you're with me. Come on. 
Never miss the individual because of the crowd. Never miss the individual because of the crowd. Never miss the person that God allows your path to cross with who's hurting, who's going through something because you're caught up in the crowd. Follow me. And he rose and and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And church, I just want you to know this personally for me. I will be a friend to sinners without apology. I will be a friend to sinners without apology. Because that's what Jesus was. And it made some people uncomfortable. And it caused them to ask some questions. But it's why he came. There's a doctor by the name of Michael Stoffman who was born and raised in Canada. He went to med school and he was studying in Montreal to become a neurosurgeon. Two years into his studies, he noticed a disturbing trend was was going on in his native country. And as a result, he moved to America to finish his education and to start his practice because he began to see that the Canadian system was set up so that the one he was operating in didn't allow the amount of interaction that he wanted With patience. There were long lines, long waits. There was red tape. There was difficulty, and it got to the point that it was nearly impossible for him, from his perspective, to see the amount of patience that he wanted to see. The very reason he became a doctor was to operate and fix those who needed it, and the system he was in wouldn't allow him the exposure he needed to the very patients he studied to fix. And so he moved to America where those restrictions at the time were gone. Dr. Stoffman wanted the ability to operate on those who needed it. The reason Jesus came was for the sick. That's me. And that's you. In the sickness of sin. I will be a friend to sinners without apology. And I just want you to know, historically, the church, there's dangers here. The, The legalistic side they, they cling to 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and they're like, but bad company corrupts good character. 
Well, never mind that 1 Corinthians 15, 33 is talking about bad influences within the church and is teaching bad doctrine. All right? That's the context for 1 Corinthians 15, 33. So the legalistic side's like, you can't be around sinners. Bad company will corrupt you. And there's danger on the other side, too. There's danger on the other side that's like, I'm just going to be a friend to sinners. And, and before you know it, what can happen is all of a sudden your conduct is, in fact, polluted. And, and all of a sudden you're bringing dishonor to the name of Christ because of your action. And this is the challenge for us because none of us are perfect. But this is the challenge. We need to be friends to sinners without apology. And we need to do so while always bringing honor to Jesus. And might I suggest the best way that we can accomplish this goal without legalism or without license towards sin is in finding friends who are willing to confront us, willing to hold us accountable, willing to engage us. May we all have those friends who at the times we're the weakest carry us to Jesus. Because that's the friend I want to be. Because that's the friend I need. And that's the friend that as I look at the life story of Jesus through the four Gospels, that Jesus was. God, thanks for coming to save us from our sin. Thanks for being willing to engage us. We so desperately need it. God, help us be the type of friend to people that we carry them to you when they need it the most. And help us, God, all have those friends in our lives as well. God, let us never miss what you want to do through us for somebody on the outside or on the fringe because we're too caught up. And God, help us be friends to sinners without apology, but do so in a manner that still brings you honor and glory that we don't fall into the danger of legalism and we don't fall into the danger of license of sin. Oh God, thank you for what you've done for us. And thank you for the greatest miracle, your forgiveness. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen.